And just as you're turning there, uh, one thing I didn't mention is that uh, next week we're not going to be here. We are going to be at Biola University on Friday, starting at 4 o'clock, um, and on Saturday, I believe the time is 9 to 5, um, for a student apologetics conference. I know lots of you guys are signed up. I know there's also a number of you guys not signed up, so if you have any questions about it, um, whether uh, what it is, what apologetics means, um, or if you have any questions about like getting help financially to go um, to the conference, don't hesitate to talk to me about that because we'd love as many of you guys to go um, as are able and as would like to. Um, with that, uh, if you're in Philippians uh, chapter 1, We are going to start reading a new section today. We're only going to be doing three verses, but I want to read the section um, so that for the next number of weeks, um, you will see what Paul is trying to explain in this new section. It starts in verse 12, and it's going to work its way down to verse 26. This is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. This is a new section uh, that we're in, and I'm not sure if that was the moment you were waiting for. There's lots of moments worth waiting for in the book of Philippians. But uh, one thing that you should know as we get into this section is that this is the moment the Philippians were waiting for. It's not very far into the letter for sure, but um, there is something the Philippians were desiring uh, to hear and they didn't necessarily hear it in the first 11 verses that we've already covered. In the introduction, Paul is explaining his thankfulness uh, for the church in Philippi, for those Christians, for their partnership in the gospel, for their love for him, and especially for their love for Jesus Christ's name to be known all over the world. And yet, at the same time, the 
Philippians would have been very impatient going up to verse 12 because they would have been waiting and saying, Paul, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your prayers. But how are you doing? How is it going with you? You're in prison. Are you okay? Do you need more help from us? Can we do anything more to support you? And most importantly, how is the gospel mission going? Is it going okay? Is everything lost because you're in prison? And so Paul actually begins in this section in in verse 12 to 26, and he starts to explain how he's actually doing, what his circumstances are like. And there's a number of ways he could do that. He, He could just simply give them information. He could just give them his diary. It's like, here's uh, what's been happening for the last uh, little while. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Paul doesn't just explain uh, the details of the situation that he's in. Instead, he gives them the information of what God is doing during his imprisonment. Paul is limited. There's, There's only so much he can do for the gospel, but something much bigger than him is happening, and it's a very encouraging thing. And that's why Paul explains in verse 12, he wants them to know something. Not just what is happening, but what God is doing. And so what Paul explains going into verses 12 to 26 is he explains his circumstances, but through a gospel perspective. The perspective that he has as a believer He can look at circumstances in a very different way that someone who didn't know Christ would be looking at them. And it's really good because there's some difficulties that he's looking at in these next three sections that we'll go through that would be hard to understand or to find joy in unless you knew Christ. But if you know Christ and if you understand the gospel, the perspective is totally different. In the next three sections, he's going to deal with three difficulties. In the section that we're going to deal with today, Paul is going to explain that his difficulty is, diff- is uh, suffering. He's suffering. In the next section, in verses 15 to 18, he's going to explain that his difficulty are other supposed Christians. He's having friction with other Christians. And then in verse 19 going on to verse 26, that section is death itself. Paul is not 100% sure whether he's going to be executed or if he's going to be released. But the reality is that he's not worried about any of those things. In fact, he's incredibly joyful because the point that Paul is trying to get across in these verses is that when you understand the gospel and through the gospel you know and have a relationship with Christ, you can have all of those things in your life, difficulty, difficulty, uh, suffering, difficulty with Christians, and even looking at death, and you can still have joy. But today we're not dealing with all of those. We're, we're only dealing with verses 12 to 14. But before we look at those, let me point out two verses to you in this section that are going to be crucial for the next three sermons that we go through. Two verses that are going to be essential to understand this. And the first is verse 18. In verse 18, Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. When Paul explains his situation, he asks, what then? Which means, what should you make of this? How should you interpret my situation? 
and he gives you the key on how to determine if this is a good situation or a bad situation. And the interpretive key is if Christ is being made known. It's not about if I'm comfortable. It's not about if I'm doing amazing. It's not about if my mood or attitude is awesome. If Christ is being made known, this is a good situation. That's how you figure out if your circumstances are good or bad, according to Paul. And the next verse is very similar, which is verse 20, where Paul explains, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It matters first in verse 18 if Christ is proclaimed, and now in verse 20, if Christ is honored, whether Christ is being made known of. Do people in the situation and the circumstances around me, including me, do we think Christ is a big deal? Is Christ being glorified? Is Christ being made much of? Is he seen by others that he is awesome and the reason for life? If he is, if Christ is the center of attention in this situation, then this is a good situation. The point that Paul is trying to make is that his goal and the goal of any Christian in any situation should be Christ needs to be made known no matter what. But what he's explaining even more than that is if you have a gospel perspective, Christ will be made known. Whether you are doing all that you can or whether you're having to depend on him because you understand your weakness, Christ has promised that if you cling to him, he will make himself glorified through you and in you. But again, today we're covering verse 12. And verse 12, 13, and 14 are going to explain the first chunk of his report. And Paul wants to explain something very important about the gospel in these first three verses. And he starts in verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And the key word there is the word advance. That's a word that was used if uh, you had an army and you were going to battle and there was an obstacle in the way. In order for you to advance, then people would need to go ahead of the army and they need to cut a path through, to cut. In order to go forward, they need someone to move a tree that was in the way or maybe cut through like a field that gave you a quicker way to the battlefield. And that word advance is talking about that. It's saying the gospel is going forward because God has removed obstacles in the way, which is amazing if you think about it. Because in verse 7, Paul said he's in prison. And in verse 13, the very next verse, he's going to explain he is in prison, which is really important because if you had been given the most important message in the whole world, and you're trying to spread that message as far in the world as you can, the last thing that would seem to help advance that cause would be imprisonment. You can't go a lot of places if you're stuck in a place. But Paul is actually saying exactly that. And we know that because in the verse he says, this has really served to advance the gospel. That word Really, I know we have different Bible translations here. So some of you have a New American Standard Bible and the word there says this is turned out for the gospel. 
And some of you have a new international version of the Bible, and it says it's actually served. But the word is grammatically trying to stress this idea of something unexpected. It's like a surprise. It's a surprise that this situation has actually turned to make the gospel go out. This is an opportunity that Paul could not have planned better if he tried. It seems bad, and yet it's turned out amazing. Paul is having like a Joseph moment. If you remember Joseph from the Old Testament, he uh, had brothers who were jealous of him and his favor with their father. So uh, they took their brother, they threw him in a pit. They were going to leave him to die, but instead they decided to sell him into slavery in Egypt. He served there and things seemed to be going well until he was falsely accused um, of adultery. Then he was put in prison He was there for a while before he was saved from prison um, by God allowing him to be used in an amazing way to Pharaoh until all of a sudden he became the second most powerful person in Egypt. And much later in the story, after this amazing turn of events, and he reconciles with his family, and there's this amazing reunification there. Later on, after their father dies, Joseph's brothers get really scared that Joseph is going to kill his brothers because he's still mad at them. And Joseph says this, one of the most amazing verses in like the whole Bible. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Paul is having a Joseph moment. What all sorts of people meant for evil, my imprisonment, which is unjust, it's really served the greatest purpose in the whole world, which is the advance of the gospel. And he explains in verse 13 and 14 two reasons why you can see the advance of the gospel. And this is the first in verse 13. The first reason is that the gospel has been brought to an unreached group. The gospel has been brought to an unreached group. He says that in verse 13. Paul says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul saying, I want you to know that the gospel is made known to those who didn't have a chance to know the gospel before. It's a lot of knowing of God that's going forth, specifically to a group called the Imperial Guard. And that literal word is praetorium, which is sometimes a word that's still used. A lot of commentators uh, used to think it referred to a building, which was the palace. And so it sounds like, oh, he's made known to people in this area. But after better translation happened in years going by, it's actually referring to a specific group of people, which is the guard, the guards, the emperor's soldiers, Roman soldiers. In fact, the most skilled soldiers uh, in the area. He also refers to there's all the rest, the whole imperial guard and all the rest, but those people seem to refer to other Roman elites that are surrounding those guards. But specifically what Paul is saying is he has had an opportunity for the gospel with these Roman soldiers, which is really awesome. I actually have pictures of kind of the equivalent um, of those people. There's a couple there. You can see the actual guards up in the top. In the bottom, you can see uh, the president's bodyguards, which um, if you look at them might not seem intimidating, but they're some of the best trained um, people in the army. That's why they have that job. Um, And in the top, I found out those people are from Star Wars. They're apparently called the Praetorium Guards as well, which is interesting. And they're supposed to be very intimidating. I haven't seen uh, any of the Star Wars um, stuff where they're in. 
I heard one movie, I, I listened to a very angry man uh, talk on YouTube. He's like, these guys are so intense, and the movies don't make them look intense. Um, but maybe in the newer, uh, I think that's The Mandalorian, they made them seem really intense. Um, basically, those guys, I found out, are basically as good as Jedis, is what I found out. And they guard the bad guy emperor. So maybe that tracks with you, maybe it doesn't. Um, the point is that the most professional military group in the empire was exposed to Paul. And Paul got to expose the gospel to them. And the reason is because these people were guarding Paul. Which you have to understand, because you might think that means, oh, they were in front of his prison cell um, when he was in prison, so he got to talk to them. It's actually more intimate than that. Because when Paul was in prison, it actually explains in the book of Acts um, through verses tw uh, chapter 21 to 28 that Paul... Uh, wasn't in a physical prison, but in fact, he was chained to a Roman soldier. And he was basically allowed to do whatever he wanted. He just had to do everything with a Roman soldier attached to him. Um, and that might seem pretty awesome. That might seem a lot better than being like a dark, damp, cold cell all the time, which it probably was. But at the same time, this was not a fun experience at all. This was like a really unfun experience. And one of the reasons was because this was actually just the end of a very long, exhausting experience for Paul. It started in Acts chapter 21, where Paul was unfairly attacked um, by Jews who were lying about him when he was sharing the gospel. He was assaulted, flogged, almost assassinated twice. And then he went through like a year, a two-year-long process of going in front of Gentile courts, a governor Festus and another governor in Jerusalem, and they were very corrupt politicians um, who were actually considering allowing Paul to be assassinated for their own political gain. And Paul was in that anxious amount of time for two years. And finally, after being able to testify, they decided, you can go to Rome and testify there. And so he went there. He was almost assassinated again. And then he was shipwrecked. And then he was almost killed again. And then he was without food. And then he was bitten by a snake and then he was collected again, and then he was finally sent to Rome, and he finally got there, and he had another two years of just waiting to go to court. It was either an incredibly difficult moment or incredibly anxiety-inducing or just boring. And every time he looked at this Roman soldier, he was reminded of this experience, and he would have been asking God some questions, or at least he could have been asking God some questions. And then the second reason this would have been exhausting for Paul is because the soldiers he was chained to would not be great guys. They wouldn't be the first group of people you'd actually want to talk to. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous pastor, described these guys as rough, uncultured men, probably the very opposite of Paul himself, who had a very refined and cultured and was sensitive with a spiritual mind. One can imagine these men with their oaths and blasphemies and cursing, and there was Paul constantly in their presence. That is the kind of trial he was enduring. One way you could think about it is imagine if you got in trouble at school for doing something wrong, and instead of getting detention, um, you got uh, attached with a zip tie to the school bully. And for a year at your school, uh, if you're homeschooled, then just imagine you're in public school, I guess, um, just walking around the school all the time, um, chained to the school bully. It would not only be really embarrassing and really awkward, 
It'd also be a little terrifying because this is the last person you'd want to talk to. And you know what? That guy probably wouldn't enjoy being zip-tied to you for a year either. It's like a punishment for him. So he'd be bitter at you. And the reality is these soldiers probably would have been the same way because this was the worst part of their job. They got to go and fight in battles, which they love. They got to toss their weight around in the Roman Empire and in Rome itself. And they got all sorts of benefits they got to enjoy while on duty. And they had a sick pension that was waiting for them, which is probably why a lot of them uh, were eventually in Philippi, in fact. And then all the while to put their time in, it's like their volunteer hours. They had to do this. And even if the best situation occurred, which is that Paul got along with one of these guys, they were on four to six hour shifts and he'd eventually get another guy. And that guy, he'd have to start a relationship all over again with all the same struggles as before. Now I understand I'm going into like a ton of detail uh, about these guys. And it's not just to give you the historical understanding of that. that that's not super essential What I just want to paint for you is a picture of how justified and easy it would have been for Paul to complain. It would have been so easy, and we all would have got him. We would have been very empathetic with Paul. If Paul said, this is the worst, we would have said, amen, absolutely. That makes sense. This is a frustrating situation. And yet the point is that was not Paul's attitude. He was not angry. He did not complain. In fact, he was joyful over that situation. And the reason is very well explained by another pastor named James Montgomery Boyce, who explained Paul himself was a soldier for Christ. And therefore he understood and saw that this man at the end of this chain represented a person for whom Christ died. Paul saw an opportunity. He saw the other person who was there, who needed the gospel, and who couldn't get away. For four to six hours, this guy got to see Paul, talk to Paul, hear about his life, see his example, and maybe be saved. Free evangelism, free opportunity, And that was so good to Paul, he could care less about his suffering. His suffering didn't distract him from the opportunity put in front of him because he had a higher goal in mind. His life wasn't about him. It was shaped by the gospel. It was controlled by Christ. And therefore, he wasn't thinking about his comfort. And he wasn't thinking about the easiest way to live because heaven was already guaranteed. Even if suffering was in the way, he cared most about looking like Christ, honoring Christ, and proclaiming Christ, especially to people he never had access to. And maybe no Christians in the Roman Empire had access. And suddenly God's chief apostle gets access all the time. And apparently he didn't ruin this opportunity because it explains two things. Number one, the whole imperial guard got to hear, which doesn't mean he was attached to every single soldier, but it meant that somehow through his testimony and through the powerful testimony of the gospel, these guys must have shared with other guys when they were off duty and them to other people. 
And then those would be buttressed and added by even more guys hearing firsthand. Until suddenly, it's like all of the Roman soldiers had heard. And the second reason we know Paul didn't ruin this opportunity is because of how the book of Philippians ends. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, as Paul is closing the letter, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Especially them. He says, everybody says hi, but the people who say hi the hardest are these people. Because some of them got saved. Some of these men who only knew battle, who only knew sin, who only knew false gods, some of them came to know Christ. Everyone's got difficulty. Everyone's got suffering. If you don't have it, you're going to have it. It's going to be easy to allow that to be considered an opportunity. It's going to be easy to consider that something difficult enough to give you excuses, whether it's your justification in Christ already or that this is just too difficult. But we're supposed to see something from the example of Paul. When he looked at this situation, he said, isn't this a glorious opportunity to show the power of the gospel? Praise God that I get to suffer like him and therefore put him on display to people who have never known it. How amazing is it that I get to return good for evil to demonstrate to evil people the goodness of God, a mercy they would never have been exposed to if I had not been placed here. I like how one commentator explained it. He said, the length of Paul's imprisonment served to thrust the gospel into higher levels of Roman society than it had ever reached before. And therefore, what appeared at first to be the fatal blow to the Christian mission, the arrest of Paul, turned out to be the means of its revitalization. The key to preaching the gospel before governors and kings and their staff personnel. I love that word, revitalization. And that's a really good word to use because it doesn't just include new people who got to hear the gospel, but people who already knew the gospel too. Because that's the second way that this got to advance the gospel. The second reason that God planned good out of a seemingly bad situation. The second reason is that the gospel had gone deeper in fellow believers. And that's in verse 14, where Paul explains most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Everyone knows we got to preach the gospel. But the Bible is so honest about what gets in the way, which is fear. And the Philippians knew that too. They were good gospel examples, but they understood the difficulty and the fear and the anxiety that can come in the Christian life. They had frightening opponents. Paul will mention them in chapter 1, verse 28, and later on in chapter 3. They were a poor church. They didn't have a ton of money, and they had to trust God to give them things, which they would then just give to the gospel mission, which means they were needy. And both of those situations can be very difficult. And the glorious thing about being a Christian that Paul explains is not only do you have a set of truths that get to change the whole way you get to view all of existence, but you also have so many examples in front of you that get to demonstrate that power firsthand, personally, through relationship. 
Paul's going to say that later in chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Because Paul was gospel-centered, he got to reproduce himself. He got to create little mini-Pauls, spiritually speaking. Other weaker Christians became stronger saints because they saw his testimony. They became much more bold to speak the word. They were able to share the gospel without fear. Two of the most difficult adversities to overcome which has nothing to do with anyone else out there, has everything to do with me in here. And yet, by the testimony of the gospel in Paul, many other people got to become more like Paul. And what Paul wants to explain is that actually doesn't really have a ton to do with him. He's not trying to explain, look at me, I'm hot stuff. I am the definition of the gospel follower. That's not what he's saying because he explains that the testimony he's given is that his imprisonment is for Christ. Which is not saying, look how much I'm doing for Christ. He's saying, more specifically, grammatically speaking, Christ put me here. This is what Christ does for all believers. He puts them in difficult situations like this. And then he gives them strength to get through it. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you look at me and see an example in me, that can be reproduced in you too. Because the gospel is not going to spread because of me. It's going to spread because of Christ and what he's doing in so many people out in the world. Paul was not scared to share the glory at all. He was very comfortable pointing to other believers and saying, look how many other people know and believe in the power of the gospel. I think this is very helpful for some of you guys who are trying to figure out if you're Christians or not. Because the tendency can be, I'll only know the power of the gospel if I look at me. And Paul is actually saying, stop looking at you. I'm not looking at me. I'm looking at Christ, and I'm looking at how many other people were transformed and used by Christ. Paul's showing you that you don't grow in confidence just by looking at your own spiritual life. You grow in confidence when you see in different kinds of people all over the world from different cultures and climates with different difficulties in front of them. They can still live and be transformed by the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. I read a story this week. In 1861, uh, Abraham Lincoln had just become president. I don't know if it was for the first time or the second time. And he could see that he was right on the cusp of something be very difficult for the states. And what that ended up being was the American Civil War. It was about two months away. Um, And before that happened, he was on a tour and he was basically going around the country and people were celebrating him for becoming president. And he just so happened in February, I think it was, to find himself in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, which if you know your history, that's where the Declaration of Independence was signed. And when he saw that in his schedule, it turned out that when he arrived there, he realized that it was actually the same day as George Washington's birthday. And there was something about that moment that was very 
moving in the midst of him being very anxious and very fearful about the future, not just for him, but for America. And with all these people around him, he actually didn't have a speech prepared, but he started speaking uh, to the people there. And thankfully, we actually have the words that he said. He said this, I am filled with deep emotion at finding myself standing here in this place. Where collected together was the wisdom, the patriotism, and the devotion to principle from which sprang the institutions under which we live. All the political sentiments that I entertain have been drawn, so far as I have been able to draw them, from the sentiments which originated and were given to the world from this hall. The sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. I have often inquired of myself what great principle or idea it was that kept this confederacy so long together. It was not the mere matter of the separation of the colonies from the motherland, but that sentiment in the Declaration of Independence which gave liberty, not alone to the people of this country, but I hope to the world and for all future time. In that moment, Abraham Lincoln was thankful he wasn't alone. He was thankful that he had other examples of other people who believed the same things he did and understood how important they were, important enough to fight for. But he wasn't emotional because he's like, I'm so happy I got a teammates all the way back in history, and they're so amazing. It wasn't about the people. It was about the principles that shaped the people. That was the point. And that's the same point Paul is making, but with so much deeper principles, even deeper than the idea of liberty. It was the idea of liberation from sin and liberation unto spiritual freedom, not just now, but for eternity. Not just a truth that's so powerful, but a God who is powerful enough to come and change the hearts of people to believe that and then to live by that counter to the sinful desires they had previously. It wasn't just a bunch of people. It was the depth of how true the gospel was and how many people were transformed by it that made him thankful to Jesus that he'd been put where he was even though it was difficult. This is the main point that Paul is trying to explain as he begins this point about his report. He's saying, listen, as I'm explaining what's happened to me, just remember, the gospel is powerful. And whether you look at me or you look around you, the gospel will prove its power. It will prove it. Because God has promised that he will prove its power. He's promised it. So as he's opening up with that explanation, he's trying to explain. God's keeping his promises. Christ is keeping his promises. And they're so good. And when you recognize how good they are, you get to participate in it. You get to see the joy of it. And it gets to distract you from so many things that steal our joy like suffering, and like difficulty. It transforms us from looking at our situations and complaining to become people who would honor Christ, as amazing as that might seem. And just to recap how Paul is explaining this, let me tell you the three ways that he's trying to explain the power of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel proved in this report, in these three verses. The first way it's proved 
is that anyone can be saved by the gospel. Anyone can be saved by the gospel. In Philippians 3.21, Paul is going to say that Christ is power which enables him to subject all things to himself. And that includes all people, anyone. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is going to say, At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus thinks that everyone should bow down to him, that means anyone can bow down to him, and one day everyone will bow down to him. Whether in redemption or in judgment, whether unto salvation or damnation. But the point he's trying to make right now is the former. He's trying to explain that as Christ said in John, I have sheep that are not in my sheepfold. He's trying to explain that no sheep is too stubborn or too far gone for Christ to bring them back. You might not believe that. Because you might think there's a person in my life who is too stubborn to believe the gospel. Maybe you know you are that person. You are too stubborn to believe the gospel. And Christ is saying, if you believe that, then you believe in a limited gospel. Your gospel is too small, and your Christ is too finite. The living, breathing God is telling you that if you are resting in your skill, or you are resting in anything else other than Christ to transform you or transform someone else, you're looking at the wrong thing. And Christ wants to give you joy, and that's why he's pointing you to look at the right thing. The reason Paul got to be such an amazing example of this is because he rested in the right thing. That he was saving nobody. But Christ was saving people. And he was just being used in that opportunity. If you want to see the power of the gospel, look at Christ and depend on Christ as you speak and as you share and as you live for Christ. But the second way he's proving the power of the gospel in his report is he showing that any circumstance can be an opportunity for the gospel. Any circumstance can be an opportunity for the gospel. A famous missionary named Jim Elliott, who was eventually killed as a missionary, he once famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain. I'm so sorry. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what he's trying to explain is that the wisest way you can live is to stop living for a dying world and start living for an eternal God of an eternal world and start dedicating your life to invite people into that word, world through the gospel. That's what he's saying. We might think a situation is too hard. And the reality is, all of life is hard. Whether you believe in Christ or you reject Christ, all of life is going to be hard. The question is, what are you going to believe matters most to help you decide what's worth fighting for, what's worth plowing through, and what's worth giving up on? I even heard this week a famous comedian talk about this. He said something that was really interesting, actually. He said, your blessing in life is when you find the torture that you're comfortable with. And that's really true, and also really sad with a guy who's saying that the torture I'm comfortable with is writing jokes for a living. That's really sad. But you know what? That is exactly the guy who you might meet 
that we need to fight for to kind of reveal how obvious it should be that a life like that is nothing in comparison to living with Jesus Christ forever. That's a hardness worth fighting for. And part of the reason it's so encouraging to know that too is whatever hardness Christ puts in your way in sharing the gospel, that hardness will be helpful. The hardness will be helpful. One uh, congregant was telling their pastor, you know, it's really hard to be a Christian at my job. And the pastor responded to him, you know, I think it'd be harder if you were a witness in a perfect situation, which is to say, if you were more comfortable, that's when it would be harder. And the congregant was confused, so the pastor explained, the difficult situations are the easiest place to be a witness because the contrast of your life to others is so obvious. And your character will be so manifest if under adversity you demonstrate Christ-likeness. And that's true. And it's not because God wants to put you in a test. It's because God wants to put you in a situation where you need to depend on him. A situation where you know your weakness so you can rely on his strength. And when you do that, that's how you give a Christ-like witness. Because that's how you're transformed by Christ. That's how you start to look like him more. And that's a powerful testimony in someone. That's a powerful thing for a person to see. I know the big thing that's resting on some of your heads, which is, well, what if my life is not very difficult? What if my life is fine? You know, what if the thing I wrote down in the page today was nothing? Nothing's difficult. And that's fine. It's okay to be in that stage in life when you're a teenager. But there's two things you should know. One is life will get hard. It absolutely will because we live in a broken and sinful world. And one day you are gonna reach that moment where you're gonna question stuff because it's hard. And it's gonna be moments like that where you need to understand if you really believe in Jesus Christ or if you're living for something else. And whatever that something else is, it's not gonna hold you and grip you and give you hope the way that only Christ can. Yet the other thing is, if you're comfortable now, you have the opportunity to train for that moment. And until you get to that moment, to believe what Jesus is saying to you now. Because what Paul is explaining in his report is that when you get to share the gospel in a difficult situation, regardless of how eloquent or skillful you are at, at sharing the gospel, one of three things will happen when you share the gospel. One of three things will happen, guaranteed. Either the person you're talking to will be saved, or you will grow in Christ-likeness, we're both. One of those three things is guaranteed. Either someone will be saved to know Christ, or you will know Christ more, or both. And you have an opportunity now to know that Christ more deeply without distractions that will come one day so you can rest in them when things get hard. And there's actually a third way you can do that because there's a third way that Paul is explaining how you understand the power of the gospel, which is, to look at many examples which provide strength in the gospel. Many examples provide strength in the gospel. Again, you start to know and love the gospel not by looking at yourself, but also by looking at others, specifically others who love Christ, because they'll point you to Christ. There's a lot of ways you can do that. You can read the Old Testament, 
Read the Old Testament and see God's faithfulness to so many different people across history, people who are messed up and people who messed up bad. And God used them for his glory. Read Paul's story. Go to Acts chapter 21 and read to the end. In Acts 28, I did it this week. I think it took 15 minutes. That's the whole story of what led up to basically where Paul is at when he wrote Philippians. All the difficulties he went through, all the stresses, all the anxieties, all the almost dying. And you can see his outlook on the whole situation. When his friends beg him in Acts 21, 14, please don't go. We know the Holy Spirit told us you're going to suffer in Jerusalem. And he said, why are you making me cry? That's literally what it says. Why are you making me cry? This is exactly what I signed up for. You can read missionary biographies. Find people who you've heard stories of and read their books. If you don't want to read a big biography, read children's versions of the biographies. They're all explaining the same thing, that God used many different people. Look at missionary magazines like Voice of the Martyrs. There's lots of good ones that will explain people currently doing things for Christ in the middle of difficulty. Find podcasts and videos that explain gospel ministry throughout the world. This week, me and Ashley were listening to a podcast where people from cults were saved. Today, I was listening of a story of someone from Alaska who got saved. There are all sorts of good opportunities of people sharing their unique story of how God saved them. And probably one of the best things and most immediate things you can do is ask people in this church their testimony. Every Sunday morning, you've got like 200 people who have an amazing story of how Jesus saved them. They're all very different, and they all want to tell you about it, especially you as a teenager. They want to tell you about it. Find someone on Sunday morning, just ask them the simple question, how did Jesus save you? And I'm sure they'd be pumped to tell you. If they don't tell you now, I'm sure they'll take you out for coffee or something. Ask people in this church how Jesus saved them. I want to end with this. It's a story I've I told you once before, but it's a good story. There was a, a man who wanted to become a missionary, um, and so he decided to sign up to get on a boat and go to an island where tribal people had never heard the gospel before. So he got uh, some training for a number of years. He got on the boat, went over, and the moment he stepped off the boat and met the natives, he was killed. The moment. No opportunity to share the gospel, nothing. News got back to his mother, and his mother's response was, God, please provide someone else to go over there because those people need to hear the gospel. At the exact same time, that man's brother personally felt the call. Never wanted to be a missionary before. Never even thought about it. He was a lawyer or a doctor. He was comfortable for life. He said, all of it aside, got the same training, got on a boat, went to the same island. He got to share the gospel with a number of people, but shortly after, he too was killed. A mother lost both of her sons. And many people probably would have told her that it was for basically nothing. And yet the mom's response in her prayer was, I wish I had a third son. Because then he would feel doubly motivated to go and share the gospel. The only thing that can possess someone to think so selflessly about their life 
and the lives of the people they love more than anyone else in this world is to trust in Christ's promises. Is to lose this whole world and gain their soul in Christ that they could share how other people might save their souls in Christ. A God who loves them, who came to earth and died for them just so that they might live forever with him.